So I don't know where you come from when it comes to your experience. You know, you see ashes on the forehead. You're like, what the, what's happening? Like, clean yourself up. What are you doing here? Um, I, maybe, you know, for me, it was like you just had to stay away, like I said, from chocolate. But as I've grown, I've learned that Lent is far from a gritting of the teeth, holding on for dear life to not give into the thing that you said you were going to give up. Much, much, much more beautiful than that. As I've studied this season called Lent, I've found there's such life and meaning in the season that we're invited into as a church, both globally and historically. So as we embark upon this Lenten season, we're going to do throw so by going through John chapter 17, 18, and 19, which really hone in on the death of Jesus and the hours that lead up to his death and his arrest and betrayal and things that happen there. And so we're going to be focusing on that and we're going to be picturing Jesus as we move towards his resurrection. So what I want to do a part of our time this morning is just kind of walk through some of the heart of Lent. What is the design? Why does it exist? And what are we invited into within that? And so, which leads me to my first point. We're going to get to John 17. Uh, so hold on. Uh, fellas and ladies, but in, uh, the first point I got for you this morning is this, the season of Lent is an invitation to embrace our limits and to turn to God. The season of Lent is, invite, is an invitation for us as a community to embrace our limits and to turn to God. There's, there's some really beautiful history around Lent um, that brings us to this invitation. Lent began around 325 AD. It was originally a 40-day period that led up to Easter Sunday. And, and about 200 years later, there was a guy named Pope Gregory who finalized, up to that point, 325 to about the 6th century, there was just kind of a hodgepodge. People did different things, and, and Pope Gregory brought a little bit of clarity around regulating this as kind of a norm within the church. And so it began on this day called Ash Wednesday, this Wednesday that was 46 days prior to Easter. And so the intent was that we would kind of refrain from certain things during that period, but on Sunday you wouldn't. Because on Sunday, let us not forget, is the Lord's day and he is risen indeed. And so there was a time where 40 days you would abstain and you would, you would hold back from something or you would fast from something, but then on that Sunday you would remember it's still a feasting day because Jesus is Alive, And so that time was focused. If you, if you take the 46 days and you remove those six Sundays, 46 minus 6, you carry the 1, that's 40 days, 40 days of intention and focus. And 40 days is always an emphasis in, in salvation history. You look back to the 40 days and 40 nights of the flood that took place in Noah's day. You look to the 40 years of the Israelites in the wilderness, you look through the 40 days where Jesus found himself fasting in the wilderness. And there was this theme in 40 days around training, around testing, around preparing. These days were designed to prepare one's heart for something that God might be doing in their lives. It was an intentional space for the people of God to focus in on God a bit more. So there's a little bit of the history of how we got to Lent. But when it comes to the heart, the heart of Lent is, is throughout the scripture. Um, but I want to highlight two th specific themes. The first is in Genesis chapter 3. 
We see this unique moment. The first three chapters of, of Genesis are so profound for how we see the world. If you focus just on Genesis 1 and 2, you see this utopian place where God created the world and created it good and created it with harmony, shalom, this world filled with God and his beauty and his creation. He creates it and he says it's very good and he creates this pinnacle joy of the creation and the creator and fellowship together. It's this perfection and yet the scripture doesn't end there. In Genesis chapter 3, we meet a serpent, later labeled the father of lies. And he has this subtle, destructive lie that comes from the tongue of the serpent. And he says, and to this day, he continues to say, did God really say? Did God really say? He begins to put some suspicion into the hearts of the people he says, did God really say what he said that you say he said? And Eve and Adam begin to question the good character of God. And in no time, they rejected his design and, and fractured this beautiful world by rebelling against him. And Adam and Eve became lost or fell into sin. And in the cool of the day, God came looking for them because, again, this was about the culmination of joy of the creator and the creation walking together. And he comes looking for them and they go hiding, no longer experiencing the beauty and the goodness of the creation, no longer finding the joy of relationship. And instead they hide. And in, in this moment in Genesis 3, there's this beautiful shadows of, of future promises of redemption but within it also, pointing to a future son of Eve who would crush the serpent. But also within Genesis 3, we read this statement that God gives to Adam. And he says, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The design wasn't that you were dust, and to dust you shall return. But because of sin and the rebellion against God, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This statement becomes a part of the ethos of what Lent is. See, this flies in the face of everything that we have been told. We've been told that we're limitless. We've been told that we're um, um, omnipotent, that we're all-powerful, that we're omniscient, that we have all knowledge. But the reality of it is that we are limited. Our lives are short. Our lives are hard. Our lives will disappoint us. We aren't the center of the world. We are mortal. We are limited. And the season of Lent helps us to befriend our mortality and befriend our limits as we look forward to the day of resurrection, Easter Sunday. It's a way that produces wisdom in us. It reminds us of the, the psalmist that says, teach us to number our days we would live a heart of wisdom. And when we embrace our limits, when we embrace our mortality, we actually find wisdom. And Lent helps us. It helps us remember our limits. It helps us remember our mortality. It helps us remember that there is a God and we are not him. It helps to, us to remember our limits. And so Lent reminds us of our limits, but it also reminds us 
of this gift of repentance. This is everywhere throughout the scripture. But in Joel chapter um, 2, starting in verse 12, it, it reads this. It says, Even now declares the Lord, Return to me with all of your heart, with fasting, with weeping and mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. See, this is supposed to be read at the beginning of the Lenten season, to be read on Ash Wednesday. And in context, Joel writes to these people as one of the prophets of this day, telling them that there's impending judgment coming. There's a plague of locusts that are eating everything, and there's a legit fear taking place. And Joel invites the people not to prepare themselves by setting aside a bunch of food. He invites them to return to the Lord their God and to return, allow their hearts to return to him. See, in this text, we find what Lent is about. Lent is not about what you do or don't do or what you give up or what you don't give up. It's about God. It's about experientially knowing God and knowing him more deep, deeply. There's four adjectives that we learn about God here, that he is gracious, that he is merciful, that he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This is the focus of Lent. It's not about God being threatening or angry if you don't give this up or don't give this up or whatever, but it's because of his love and care for you that he invites you to turn your heart to him. It's not out of anger. It's not out of frustration. It's not about all the things you're not doing right. That's not the nature of God. But it's out of an abundance of love and care for you that he invites you to embrace your limits so that you can turn your heart more fully to him, the God who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And so in Lent, we're reminded that we are dust and to dust we shall return. We're reminded of our limits. And secondly, we're reminded to repent and to believe in the goodness of God in the gospel. So the purpose of Lent is a season of preparation to prepare your hearts as we look forward to the day of resurrection found on Easter. So I don't want Lent to be February, February's version of your New Year's resolutions. And I know the stats on our resolutions, and I know most of us just aren't good at them. We're not good at them. As humans, we're not good at them. We overpromise ourselves things, and we don't follow through on them. We just live a life of deep disappointment about ourselves. And so I invite us into baby steps, things that are realistic, but things that would be helpful for us. John, John Acuff says, you know, set goals and then cut them in half. Sometimes that's helpful for us to be a bit more realistic instead of giving up everything and then in two days not giving up anything, like taking just a legit step, one step forward. So I want to invite us into this space of, of Lent, this season of Lent that we're going to be focusing on in the following several weeks. And during Lent, we're invited to refrain or abstain or fast from something to remember your limits and the limits of this world, that it cannot give you what you think it can give you, and to reset our hearts on God. There's so many ways to do this, and I'm not going to tell you what to do or not do. That's not my job. But I want to speak briefly to 
the consideration of what a digital fast can be for us. Fasting historically has been about abstaining from food. Throughout church history, fasting is predominantly about uh, abstaining from different types of food. And some of us, for dietary reasons, can't even do that. And so you enter the rejection of chocolate at all costs. But it was designed to remove, why would we get rid of maybe different kinds of food for a season? It was designed to remove the desire to numb ourselves. Oftentimes, food will be something that we use to numb ourselves from the realities of our life. And in reality, in 2024, there might not be nothing that numbs us more than the quick pickup of our phone. If we're honest, we have a quick tendency to always be multitasking at all costs, not be present and in return that can numb ourselves from what's going on under the surface, maybe what God is doing in us. And so what if it took, what if we took a season, in whatever way this looks like for you, to simplify our phones a bit more, to keep what is utility and to remove maybe what is distracting? If this is something that you would be open to, I, I would invite you into maybe considering a few things related to this. And again, you might not want to do this, and that's totally fine. I, I, I don't care. I want you just to be obedient to what you feel like you need to do in this season. But if it's something you're open to, I want to give you like real practical, like four things, and then we're going to move on to John. Because again, we still have John 17. But you can trust me. I, I understand time, and I'm, I'm going to be working with you. But the first thing I would just say, if you want to lean into this, and maybe like a digital type fast, is just simplify, simplify your phone. You know, you actually have the ability to delete apps. <laughs> you have the ability to evaluate your screen time and see what you spend your time on. Apple's done a beautiful thing to fill us with more guilt than we already feel by just looking at that screen time review for the week and to see what you spend your time on. And so, again, evaluating what are the utility things you got to do for work. Or you got you to make sure what the weather is and you got to check the weather. So the weather's an important app for some and, and the map app is important because we don't know where we're going. We don't, we don't print things off anymore and so we got to have that. There's certain apps we do need and then maybe other apps like social media or certain news apps or certain games. I'm not telling you what to do or not to do but there are some of those apps that we just go to when we have a free second and we don't know how to be still anymore. We don't know how to slow down and just breathe. We have to have our phone in front of us. And I'm, I'm guilty of that like the next person. But things like this where we can kind of pull back, delete a couple of those apps, and to simplify things for us. If you need to get on social media or do other things, you can do it on your laptop. And having it as a, as a, like a knee jerk when you have a free moment, it could be helpful to maybe simplify. So the first thing I would say if that's something you're interested in is simplify your phone. The second thing I would say is don't have your phone next to you when you go to bed. To actually parent your phone. If you're single and you want to have your phone just because you want to feel safe in your room, I get that for sure. Maybe put it on another side of your room that's not next to your, to your table right next to you so it's not the first thing you see when you wake up or the last thing you see when you go to bed. I've heard somebody say it before, parent your phone. We actually put it to bed and if you really care about it, you can put a little blanket over it. You can just say, night-night, I'm going to bed, and you don't wake up. You don't need to wake up. I'm going to go to bed, and then you can go to your bed. And a crazy thought, you could just read a book before bed. You could just think about your day and where God was present in your life that, over the day. You can actually think about things that are not related to your phone, and so create some space away from your phone. It can go a long ways. I would say if there's something you're interested in doing, I would, I would third thing, be prepared that detox, you will need to detox. 
for real. Like if there's certain apps you're just habitually used to leaning into to remember that it's going to take a little time to undo that habit and the first 10 days are probably going to be tricky. And the last thing I would say is uh, the goal isn't to abstain for abstaining's sake. The goal is to fill that space with prayer, with scripture, with community, with reflection. Imagine a a meal with friends around a table where your phones are nowhere to be found and you're just present with one another. There's something really profound about that in the season of Lent. And so Lent is about remembering your limitations. And the phone makes us think that we're not limited. So simplifying our phone reminds us that we are limited. And And the second thing Lent does is it reminds us to repent and turn our hearts to God. And so whatever that looks like for you, whether it's phone or food or something else, whatever you feel like you need to do in the season, I would just invite you into that, whatever that is, to turn our hearts in this season of preparation toward God. That's point number one. Point two is this. Jesus gives us a picture of eternal life in John 17. So you thought, Ernie, how are you getting to John 17? Well, we just made the turn, and so we are now moving into John 17, and we now enter this incredibly intimate moment where we get this written down um, space where Jesus prays before his crucifixion. We have now arrived moments before we have the, um, the temple police and we have who we're going to meet next week, and we have the Roman guard that are now all with Judas on their way to the garden to arrest Jesus as he's praying, and he's aware of all of it. And the last moments we get consolidated into this prayer, this picture of Jesus' heart as he moves towards his death. We meet this unique moment where this written prayer of Jesus takes place. We know throughout the Gospels in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we, we see moments throughout where Jesus pulls away to pray. The value of that is so imperative for those who follow Jesus, to create space, to be alone with, with Jesus. And what's beautiful about this moment in John 17 is that in the prior couple of chapters that we just came out of, we heard of an emphasis of comfort and courage and a call to dependence. And what I love about this moment here is that that wasn't just something that Jesus charged his disciples to do, but it was something that he embraced himself. In John 17, in this moment here, he is embracing courage. He's embracing a call to dependence, and he's leaning in deeply to comfort in his Father. And so in this moment, we read this written prayer, and we pick it up in John chapter 17, starting in verse 1. It says this, And when Jesus had spoken these words, the words that we just read over the last several weeks. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you have gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had had with you before the world existed. He approaches God in this moment where we see in other gospels, he is feeling the, 
stress and the anxiety and the agony. In another gospel, we see that Jesus is sweating blood, that he is overwhelmed in this moment, and yet in this moment, he approaches his father in a way that's so important for us. The point is that we, we don't want to forget how important it is as we approach God in prayer to remember his character, to remember his nature. And he says this stunning, stunning statement. He says, this is eternal life. It's kind of a big statement that he's about to make. What, what is eternal life, Jesus? This is eternal life. He mentions it twice in this text. This is eternal life that they know you, the only true God in Jesus whom he has sent. You know, we have access to knowing more than any time in human history. A simple search, you can, you can give yourself access to never-ending data. We know this. You want to learn about sports, you got it. Just Google it. You want to know about crypto, you can look it up. You want to know about stock markets, you want to know about real estate, you want to know about psychiatry, you want to know about parenting, you want to know about dog breeding, you want to know about anxiety-reducing sites like WebMD. You want to know about like anything, you can just look it up, right? You can, I feel like this. What's wrong with me? You can just look it up, and it's going to give you great data, accurate, always accurate data. We have <laughs> never-ending knowledge right before us, and oftentimes that prevents us from exploring what Jesus is inviting us into in eternal life, which is to know him. We can get sidetracked by knowing everything else that we can forget, the, the beautiful well before us, which is to know him. Jesus invites us to a knowing, a deep knowing that shapes us to the core. This word know him is, is a intimate, an intimate knowing. It is a relational knowing. It is a deep knowing. It is a meaningful knowing. In Matthew Chapter 1, verse 25, uh, Matthew uses the same word here when he says that, um, that Joseph knew her not until she had given birth to his son. That, that idea of intimacy, it's not referring to the same here in John 17, but that intimate knowing. In John 10, he uses the same word when he says, I am the good shepherd, I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. There's this intimate knowing that's baked into eternal life. I don't know how you would summarize eternal life. I don't know what comes to mind for you. Maybe it's as simple as life after death, or avoidance of death, or what we do when we die. Maybe it's just this idea of heaven or clouds, who's in or who's out. But Jesus is saying eternal life is this, that we would know God and know him deeply. See, eternal life is about knowing, intimately knowing God. And Paul tapped into this when he wrote to the church in Philippi. We've mentioned this um, letter in previous weeks, but in this section, he writes while in chains, and he uses the same word in Philippians chapter 3, verses 8, and then I'll read verse 10. He says, indeed, I, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them, to, count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And then he goes on in verse 10, he says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him 
in his death. There's this profound otherworldly vision that Paul gives to us, baked into the invitation of eternal life, that we would know, grow to know and experience Jesus more deeply. This is the point of, of Lent, and it's the movement of redemption, culminating in the picture the prophet Habakkuk gives when he says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water covers the sea. See, this is eternal life, that we would meaningfully and intimately know Jesus. And see, it's within knowing that leads to change. This knowing isn't to produce arrogance, that I have information that you don't have, that I know more than you. That is not at all what I'm referencing here, that you do know or you don't know. It's a knowing that shapes who we are becoming. As we know, truly know Jesus, he shapes who we then become. See, because of our sin and our lostness, we have become deformed to the core. And it is in our knowing of Jesus or beholding Jesus, who he is and what he's like, that reforms us and shapes us. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 3.18. He says, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate or behold the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The invitation here is to know and to know deeply more of who God is and to allow him to shape who we are. Paul continues his theme in his wonderful letter to the church in Rome, and he says this in Romans 12 too. He says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. So the Greek word for transformed is metamorpho, which is where we get the word metamorphosis. And my, my youngest son is, is pretty obsessed with, with bugs. Um, he got a Venus flytrap for Valentine's Day. So if that helps bring clarity to his love with, with bugs. And so he's always collecting bugs and always collecting different kind of things. And sometimes he's like, whoa, I didn't know that was in the house. I thought these were supposed to stay outside. And so he for sure, I'm like, I thought we had pest control. I was like, oh, we have a son that kind of bypasses the pest control and moves them over the line so they don't have to get killed. And so he definitely <laughs> likes to do that. But uh, I've learned a, a little bit more about bugs uh, as I've just become his dad, because he's definitely taught me more about dinosaurs and more about bugs, just because of his nature and, and who he is and what he loves. Um, but we think about that when we think about, you know, caterpillars, and caterpillars are, are uh, these little critters, these little hairy critters. One of my boys uh, grabbed a, a little green caterpillar and ended up, like, breaking them out into hives, and so don't hold the, the green caterpillars, but, but you have these caterpillars that end up going into these cocoons, right? And then over a, a short period of time, they, they change, and the butterflies. And I was like, how did that get to that? That doesn't make any sense to me. And yet, the same word that Paul's using of transformation is the very heart of the gospel. That you and I are one way, deformed in so many ways in our upbringing and the things that we're, we were taught and the ways that we were influenced. And yet, when we rub shoulders with Jesus and we surrender to his life over a lifetime, the people that we are invited to become like are very different than the people we were initially. And that's from growing in a relationship with Jesus. And that's what we're invited into in this vision of transformation. This is eternal life. That we would know him, experience him, walk with him, 
grow with him. And this is not just a future knowing. This is not just when you die, that starts. That's when you trust in Jesus. That journey of eternal life begins now as we have the opportunity to grow and experience him. And then, yes, on the other side of death as well. See, the offer of Jesus is for Christ to be formed in us. It's the invitation of discipleship to know him. So this is eternal life, that we would know him. And then briefly want to hit two other things within this prayer. Point three, Jesus prays that his disciples would endure through hardship. I love this little section here. It speaks to the heart of Jesus. In verse 11, it says, he says, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. I did not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I love this part of the prayer, because, not because I like hardship, but because it expresses Jesus' care for his people. There's two things we see within this. The first is his deep trust in his Father. Again, he knows those people are about to arrest him. He knows he's about to experience the most excruciating death in human history on top of the justice of God on him. He knows that is coming down the pipe, and yet his heart is for, I trust you, Father, with my life. I love the way he trusts God with all of his life. And then he exposes his deep affection for his sheep. He says, keep these ones, Father. Father, protect these ones. He knows that he's no longer going to have the control or the ability to protect them. And so he's giving them over to his Father. And he's saying, Father, I trust you with these ones. Would you keep them? Would you not take them out of this world, but would you protect them as they're sent into this world because I'm leaving would you keep them would you guard them I love Jesus's heart in this section and finally the fourth point again brief is this that Jesus prays that his church would be united in love and in vision we'll read this John 17 20 through 24 it says I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their words that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me 
may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Again, some beautiful language here, but he, he prays first. He says, I pray that they would be one. He uses that word four times, that they would be one. They would be united. You can think about all the times that churches have been split or broken apart because of things that don't really matter. He says, I want them to be one under the lordship of Jesus. I want the lordship of Jesus to be the thing that keeps them united to me. Praise for oneness. And he prays for tunnel vision. He prays, he says, I desire. You know, desire is that word that kind of evokes the core of our heart. He says, Father, I desire the ones you've given to me would be with me where I am, that they would see my glory. He's speaking back to that very heart of eternal life. He says, Father, I want these ones to experience eternal life and the joys therein, which brings us back to the invitation in this Lenten season. Friends, remember your limitations. There is a God and you are not him. Remember to let our lives echo repentance, turning our heart to God afresh. See, the offer of Jesus is constant in any season and in every season. And in this season, as we close, we're reminded of these words of Jesus. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle and humble in heart. We're invited in this season to experience Jesus. That's the heart of Lent. That's the invitation for you in this season to have an invitation to experience Jesus in this season. Friends, we are limited and we are invited into the joys of knowing Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for seasons to focus on you afresh, a bit more intentionally. Lord, in this Lenten season, I do ask you to stir our hearts to remember who we are, remember who you are, remember that you are gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Lord, we want to know you. This is eternal life. So I pray that we would feel that invitation not out of begrudgingly approaching you, not out of guilt, but out of invitation to explore you and know you and to find you in community and to find you in the scripture. This is eternal life, that we would know you. Invite our hearts more deeply into that in this season. In Jesus' name.